figure that out, whether slaves are free and have all been made to drink into one spirit. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile. We have the same spirit. We have the same salvation. There's no such thing as hyper-dispensationalism unless you take it out of uh, take the Bible out of context, and I wish people could figure that one out because it's a real heresy that's being taught out there. Um, comments, the opening words of this verse, for by one spirit, continues on with the theme of the previous verses. From verse 411, we have been shown that the gifts and ministries all came from the same spirit, and therefore their use should be united for one ultimate goal. There should be no disharmony among the believers, no boasting about one's gift, and no feelings of being of less value within the body because of the gift or ministry we may possess. I've said that a couple times, but I'll stress it again. If you're in a church and you're doing something, it doesn't matter if you're cutting the lawn, cleaning the toilets, or in the pulpit. You're ministering. You're doing what the Lord has put in uh, your life as a gift. And just do it to the best of your ability, to the glory of God. Do it. And uh, then going on, to support this, we are told that this is one by this one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. By this one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, makes no difference. Paul just explained that the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being mem many, are one body. As this is so, then each member is a part of a cohesive whole, which should be working towards the accomplishment of the purposes of the whole body. To further bolster this point, he then gives two examples which demonstrate the greatest extremes possible. The first is concerning the identifier, whether Jews or Greeks. You're not going to find any greater distinction anywhere in the Bible than Jews and Greeks. This is the Old Testament's greatest distinction. To be a Jew was to be one of the chosen people of God. To be a Gentile was to be outside of the covenant promises. But now, in Christ, that immense distinction is erased. Both Jew and Gentile have been baptized into one body. One body. There's not two. There's not two salvations. There's no such thing as that. Similarly, the same is also true with slaves or free. A slave was one without rights and was under the authority and control of another. A free man had rights and could own slaves, choosing to direct what the slaves did, when they did it, and so on. However, the same Spirit baptized both slave and free into one body. In this body, each member has the same rights and the same privileges extended to him. Everybody got that? Jew, Gentile, slave, free. Great distinctions within humanity. We're all one in Christ. It doesn't make any difference. And if that's the case with those greatest of distinctions, that means everybody else is in the same body as well. Nobody should feel left out. Nobody should feel they're not important that they don't have something that they can do which is of value for the body. The uh, Together, regardless of the category they stood in, from a cultural or societal aspect, they have all been made to drink into one spirit. If you uh, want to have more on that one as far as slaves and free, just go read the book of Philemon. It'll take you about 40 seconds to read, and there's enough information in it to last you a lifetime of understanding God's grace even on slaves and slaves that have been disobedient to their masters as well. Anyway, um, <clears throat> they've all been made in, to drink into one spirit. Each received the same healing waters of regeneration. A question which arises from this verse is whether the baptism mentioned is speaking of water baptism or baptism of the Holy Spirit. The latter is certainly the case. It's not speaking of water baptism. Paul has been speaking of the work of the Spirit consistently. Water baptism is only an outward sign of an inward change in the believer. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event which occurs upon belief, and it is granted to all who believe, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. As a final point, it should be noted that a Gentile doesn't become a Jew when they believe, and a Jew does not lose his cultural status as a Jew. This is a point which some confuse, but throughout Paul's writings, he never equates one with the other. That's the doctrine of replacement theology. R.C. Sproul said that explicitly one time in one of his Table Talk magazines. You want to know where the Jews are? Here we are, he says, the church. And he's speaking of the Gentiles in the church, completely blowing that precept, 100%. Anyway, Paul's writings, he never, never, never equates one with the other. 
A slave who belongs to a human master doesn't stop being a slave to that human master when they come to Christ. Nor does a Jew stop being a Jew when they come to Christ. The very fact that Paul mentions the categories proves that those categories continue to exist after the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Everybody got that? He mentions the categories. It means that they are actually valid categories. I'd like to go out and take a knife and punch it through that guy's horn right now. Wow, is that annoying. Okay, life application. In Christ, you are no different than any other who is in Christ. You are a member of the body and have all the rights and privileges of that inclusion. Strive to be the best you can for the glory of the whole. That's what we should be doing. Everybody's striving to be the very best that we can. Very proud of Ray and Jess. They're over in Papua New Guinea right now. And uh, they're striving to be the very best for the whole. They, they've arrived there. They've got a little house that's up on uh, stilts right now. And it uh, uh, is very, very luxurious, even by standards that uh, I've lived in overseas. But that's just to get them acclimated. They don't have air conditioning and stuff like that. And then once they're acclimated, they'll get out into the uh, jungle or wherever they're going to live. And they'll probably be living in a real hut then. But for now, uh, at least they're getting used to these things. And I'm very proud of them. How good it is to be a child of the Lord, to know that I am one of his people. I will live my life according to his word and will exalt him with others under the church steeple. By his grace and love, he saved me from sin. And for eternity, I will praise my Lord Jesus. A great change has been made without and within. What kind of love he has lavished on us. Okay, verse 12, 14. For in fact, the body is not one member but many. For, that's Paul's beginning word there. In this verse, it serves two purposes. First, it reiterates what was said in verse 12, which was expanded on in verse 13. There it said, for as the, one, uh, as the body is one and has many members. And secondly, it prepares for a continued expansion on the thought through actual examples of real body parts complain, claiming that they are not a part of the body and what the result of such a claim entails. In the church, like the human body, there are various gifts. We've got ministries. We've got activities which make up the whole. Even though the body is animated by one soul, which is indivisible, the body itself is made up of an immense number of parts. Some of the parts, the head, for example, are made up of sim smaller parts, like the eyes, the ears, the mouth, the hair, and so on. But even these are made up of smaller parts. The mouth, for example, has lips, a tongue, taste buds, and so on. And yet these are made up of smaller and smaller and smaller parts. Everything is interconnected, and yet it is a functioning whole intended to work for the same purposes. In this unity, there is diversity. And yet in the diversity, there is harmony, such as how it should be within the church among its many members. Now, I was reading something is probably a year or more ago. I think I put it in one of the prophecy updates is that they actually found just within the past couple of years, an organ that they didn't even know existed before that. We thought we had the whole body mapped out and it was something, I want to say it was something like along the lining of the esophagus or something, but I mean, we got all kinds of parts of the body, and we have people coming into the body all the time. There's new parts to the body every time somebody is saved in Christ. Life application. Are you a mouth? Don't boast over the tongue and taste buds, because without them, you wouldn't be a mouth. Work in harmony with others for the purpose of glorifying the Lord. Verse 12, 15. We were, let me read you the verse before I give the analysis. If the foot, which I got, I stepped on a bee today, this morning when I went out to take a sunrise photo, which did me no good at all because I couldn't post it on the internet because the internet still wasn't working, but I stepped on a bee and my foot is about the size of a football and it's about half the size it was earlier. But uh, anyway, if you are the foot, if it should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, it therefore, is it therefore not of the body? Yes, a rhetorical question, which demands a no answer. We were just told that the body is not one member, but many in support of this. And yet in order to defend the unity of the body, Paul used body parts of the body as if they were in a sort of rebellion against one another. This then would be likened to individuals within the church who were warring over their individual gifts. And so he begins with the hands and the feet. A foot is a foot, but maybe it wants to be a hand. 
However, it is a foot. And so it rebels and says that it isn't a part of the body because it's not a hand. Does this change the fact that it is a member of the body? Not at all. It remains a foot and it will continue to serve as a foot to the body, regardless of whether it is happy about its footiness. And whether the hand feels exalted over this or not, there is a truth which it may actually find to be rather underhanded. The hand can't get the body to where it's going without the foot. If the body is hungry and the necessary food is down the road at the market, the hand is rather useless in getting the body to the market. In fact, the hand may think that a conspiracy is afoot against it. But this isn't the case. Rather, the foot is designed to perform its function and get the hand and the rest of the body to the market in a fairly fine fashion, thus outfooting the footlessly failing hand. The body was construed in a handy way to ensure that all of its parts are interdependent so that none outfoots another. But instead, each part will graciously accept the role which divine providence has handed it. This very passage of scripture may have been on the mind of Alexander Pope when he penned these words to consider. What if the foot ordained the dust to tread, or hand to toil aspired to be the head? What if the hand, the eye, or the ear declined to serve mere engines to the ruling mind? Just as absurd for any part to claim to be another in this general frame. Just as absurd to mourn the fate or pains the great directing mind of all ordains. All are but parts of one stupendous whole whose body nature is and God the soul. That's Alexander Pope from the Essay on Man from 1734. Life application. If you're a foot, you are no less important than a hand. You are part of the body which is indispensable to the whole. Be content with who you are. The body cannot work properly without you. Verse 12, 16. Let's see here. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. It is therefore not of the body. Paul just used the foot and the hand as comparative parts of the body. Now, using the same type of comparative analysis, he mentions the ear and the eye. Did I read that? The ear and the eye? 16. I think I read 15 again, didn't I? No, you read it. Oh, did I? Okay. I'm, you know, I'm really struggling. I smashed my finger today. It was bleeding all over the place. I broke this nail and I got exposed skin from under the nail. And when you touch that, that's painful. And I got this foot here. I got no internet. I've just, I've been beside myself all day. The second so. part of the verse is identical in both of them. In both of them. Okay. That's why you thought you read it again. Yeah. Well, no, I, I don't remember even reading anything no, about an did. ear or a, uh, a, whatever. I just, I can't even imagine having, uh, I'm zoning right now. Um, let's see here. Uh, yeah, Paul just said the uh, use the foot and the hand as comparative body parts, and now using the same type of comparative analysis, he mentions the ear and the eye. Each has an important function for the body, and if either is lacking, the whole body will suffer. But some might say one is more important than the other. Although not universal, it is common to hear people say that if they had to choose seeing or hearing, they would choose anybody? Seeing, seeing you? Hearing. Hearing. I would, I would want seeing. You would want seeing. Yeah. Anybody else seeing? Everybody here wants seeing? Yes. Okay. All right. I got no answer from two of them back there. So anyway, um, let's see here. Um, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. It's common for uh, to hear people say that if they had to choose seeing or hearing, they would choose seeing. Because of this, the ear may hear in fear that should the choice be real, its time has drawn near. But Paul asks, if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, does it change the fact that it is actually still a part of the body? Of course not. The ear doesn't stop being a part of the body just because its feelings are hurt that it's not an eye. And so the ear can cry, well, if it were an eye, and wonder why it's not an eye. But we should not fear that the ear will refuse to hear even if it attempts to try. The ear will continue to be a part of the body, and it will continue to allow us to enjoy all the marvelous sounds for which it was intended. Both the ear and the eye were designed by God for special purposes, which each beautifully performs when it is operating properly. And so it is with those in the church. If the individual understands that his gift is truly needed and of value, 
that person won't complain against those with other gifts, but will instead work in harmony with them for the building up of the body. We got a couple of people that said um, they'd rather lose their hearing than their seeing. I'm exactly the opposite. I could not do without my hearing. I just, I would be beside myself. I love to listen to music. I love to hear the birds when I wake up in the morning. My eyes, you know, I figure I could probably learn Braille in a year or so and keep going with that. But I, I just don't think I could do without hearing. That would be the really difficult one for me. Anyway, life application. If you are an ear, be happy that you can hear. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Someone spoke the word to you, and you believed it was true. In that you were saved when you rightly behaved, by believing not by sight, but in your heart, as God says, is right. Be thankful for who you are, and use your gift to his glory. Verse twelve seventeen. Let's see here. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? This verse is evident in and of itself. After discussing various body parts and how they relate to the whole, he turns the concept around. For example, what if there were just an eye and nothing else? He asks the obvious, where would be the hearing? There wouldn't be any. But further, if an organism were only an eye, it would actually serve no purpose at all. Without a brain, there would be no processing of the sig signal which passes through the eye. Without feet, there would be nothing to allow the eye to move in order to see in various directions. Likewise, there would be nothing to move the eye when a predator came along. The list could go on and on forever at the huge lack there would be in the existence of any eye with nothing attached to it. And the same is true with any other body part. Paul asks about the ear, the hearing. If the whole body was an ear, where would be the smelling? There wouldn't be any. His comments here are known as reductio ad absurdum, or reduction to the absurdity. This is an argument where the use of the assertion would have a ridiculous or an untenable result. He's not attempting to be silly in his words, but rather to get those in Corinth and thus all of us to consider the importance of each person and the use of that person's gift for the benefit of the whole body. If a pastor, say an I, has no one to accomplish the multitudes of other tasks within the church, then he would actually have no purpose at all. A pastor without a church of people, ears, noses, feet, feet, hands, and so on, is not a church. Life application, nobody's gift is so important that it can stand alone. Without a body to receive and complement the gift, the gift is wasted. Okay, verse 12, 18. We're moving right along today. Uh, without Jim and Linda, though, it's kind of uh, uh, it's fun to have him do some reading, and he gives more back-and-forth banter than you guys are today. Everybody's very quiet here. Um, let's see here. Verse 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. But now is stated to contrast the examples given in the previous three verses. The many body parts don't fight against one another, but rather they complement each other. And no part of the body reflects the whole. Instead, each is designed to act in a particular way to benefit the whole. Keep thinking of yourselves while I'm reading this. I'm talking about body parts, and so is Paul, but he's making a point about you in the church doing something, okay? Or even if you're not in the church, you're doing something for the Lord if you're out witnessing or if you're out, you know, whatever, okay? That's what the idea is, to take what you're hearing and Think of yourself in your own position in relation to it. I'll read that again. Uh, act in a particular way to benefit the whole, which is comprised of many. Therefore, God has, as Paul says, set the members. The word set is tithamai. It shows an intentional arrangement has taken place. Each member has been fashioned by God and then has been set in a particular place in order to benefit the whole. The same word is used in John 15, verse 16. Let me take you there. And it was used in relation to Jesus when he spoke to the apostles about his intentional choice and appointment of the apostles. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that 
your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you, okay? Uh, people get confused about those verses. Who in particular is Jesus speaking to in John 13 through 16 or so? That's right. He's speaking to his disciples who are or became the apostles, okay? They're disciples specifically. I guess they were apostles at that time. He'd already designated apostles. But what came to my mind is that one of them did not end up fulfilling the final role of the apostle after his resurrection. He went out and hung himself. But anyway, yes, when you're reading John and the high priestly prayer, it is not always easy to distinguish between is he speaking to the whole church or is he only speaking to the apostles and disciples. But mostly he is speaking to them. When he says you've got this authority, he's not speaking to everybody. Okay, when he says that uh, uh, you can do this and that one thing and another, be careful not to apply that to yourself unless it is absolutely certain that it is applied to all people within the body. That's a huge mistake that people make. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are Jesus speaking to Israel under the law. Don't get that wrong. What he says there is not to be applied to the church in any way, shape, or form, okay? There are some precepts that will carry over, and Paul will delineate those, or Peter, etc. You'll read about that, and they will carry it over. But he is speaking to Israel under the law, in fulfillment of the law. That's why we were given the gospel records, okay? It's because Christ came, and he was born where? Under the law. Well, not the location. He was born under the law. And it doesn't make any difference in the world that he was born under the law unless we have a record of him fulfilling the law. The whole point of Christ coming and fulfilling the law was so he could give his life up in exchange for our sins, which is allowed under the law. Remember that? Take the animal to Jerusalem, put your hands on its head, say, I'm confessing my sins over that animal, and then what do they do? They kill the animal. The sin is transferred to the innocent. It's a picture of Christ to come. There would be no picture unless he was there fulfilling the law to show us that he was qualified and capable of taking away our sin. So do not make the mistake of Matthew, Mark, and Luke applying yourself or the church into those verses. It will not work. You will have contradiction after contradiction. I feel sorry for people that do that and think that they are handling the Bible rightly after they've been told not to. I understand it's confusing before that, but once you've been told this, you need to make sure that you handle the word right. John is different. We've talked about this, and we can do it again sometime, maybe at the beginning of the next book. John is written to everybody in a general sense, but he is speaking to specific individuals at certain times. We have to be careful how we use the high priestly prayer and all of the discussion on that last night before his crucifixion and some other points within John, but it is a gospel which is written to all people, okay? It's not him fulfilling the law so much as it is his Christological presentation. This is the Christ who has come, and this is how he will uh, affect the world from this point on. So it's a little bit different. You want to be careful to understand John is not one of the synoptic gospels, okay? Anyway, um, I've read that. Uh, they're translated as appointed. It says what I just read you in uh, John 15, 16. I have appointed you, okay? The idea here is the same. God has done this for the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. The wisdom of God is on display in the selection of each person for their appointed gift, ministry, and activity. It would make no sense to place an ear where a foot belongs and to have a knee in the middle of the forehead. It would show a significant lack of judgment and right thinking. As God is the creator and the giver of gifts to his creatures, he knows the very best placement for them within the body. There are no errors, and all things work in the body exactly as he determines. Life application. Well, before I get into life application, if you see somebody with a knee in the middle of the forehead, tell them they got that in the wrong place, okay? As you evaluate your own position within the church family, know that you are exactly where the Lord wants you. He has a good plan, and he's got a purpose for you. So trust that his placement is perfect. Then use your placement to the fullest extent you can in order to give glory to God. And now that sounds, and I say this uh, as if it, you're doing something for the church and you're supposed to be stuck there forever and ever. That's not the case. You can work to better yourself. You can go to seminary and you can become a, you know, a theologian and you can translate the Bible into different languages or whatever. Do whatever you want, but wherever God has placed you within the church, while you're in that position, do it to the best of your ability. 
that is what you are to do. And like I say, some people don't go to church, but they have the ability to be a church right where they are, presenting the gospel to people. Presenting the gospel in the writings that Paul says in the book of Romans is a priestly function, okay? When it says that we are a kingdom of uh, a kingdom of priests, or some translations say uh, you will be kings and priests of the world, that is what that is speaking about. It's not speaking about the Jews doing their own thing at some other point in redemptive history. That is speaking about the church. Paul writes it out. It is the priestly function of sharing the gospel. If you share the gospel, which you should, everybody should, you are performing the duty of the priests of the Old Testament. You are sharing what God intends. Remember what the priest function was. You had the priests, they mediated between God and the people. Christ is the priest. But in that, you have the Levites. They serve the priestly functions. They serve the priesthood for the people, and they serve the people for the priesthood. They worked in between the two. Their role goes both ways. And that's what we should be doing. We should be a kingdom of priests in the church, okay? People that say that's incorrect don't understand what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. Some translations, the NASB actually translates it correctly, and it says the priestly function of sharing the gospel. Anyway, some translations don't. They use a different term, and it obscures what he is saying. Anyway, um, let's see here. 12.19. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? Good question. But now, oh, uh, verse 12, 19, a point must have been on Paul's mind when he wrote out this verse is that no one, no one's members, interests, gifts, or ministry can be allowed to take overall precedence within the church, okay? No one member's interests, gifts, or ministry. If the heart were to cl claim that it was somehow equal to the sum total of all of the other members because of its unique makeup, then there would be no need for a body. If there was no need for a body, then there would be no body because that which is superfluous is unneeded and would eventually be cast off, like the shedding of unnecessary skin. If this were the case, the heart would find out very quickly how lonely being a heart without a body would actually be. The things that make us feel unique and indispensable are actually those things around us which we rely on and which rely on us in a harmonious and mutually benefiting way. Life application on that verse, no matter how much you do for the church and no matter how important you feel your position in the body is, you cannot survive in that capacity without others. If the pastor of a church did every single thing in the church and yet there was no one to sit in the pews, then he wouldn't be the pastor of a church. Paul says in Romans 12, 3, that we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Let us ponder that as our life application for the day. Don't think too highly of yourself. Just think, I've got a job to do. I'm going to do it to the glory of God. And whatever it is, do it to the glory of God. 1220. But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. This verse condenses and reiterates what he had previously said in verse 12, which was, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now, speaking specifically of the body of Christ, he notes the similarity of it to the natural body. I'll stop right there. Every once in a while you hear somebody say, well, there's no such thing as the body of Christ. The, ch the church is not the body of Christ. And their argument is, it's like the Jehovah's Witnesses, where they will say, where is the word um, Trinity in the Bible? And they do that a lot when they come up and they say, well, we don't believe in the Trinity. Where is it in the Bible? It doesn't matter if something is in the Bible. What matters is if the Bible teaches that something. The Bible does teach that God is Father. And it also teaches that the Son is God. And it teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, if we can figure that out from Scripture, which is very easy to do, then there must be a Trinity. Because the God is not the Son, and the Son isn't the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit isn't the Father. Right? I said God. I should have said Father. Anyway, um... So they will say that the New Testament never says the body of Christ, but it does. It says that we are all Christ's body. It doesn't have to use the exact term body of Christ for us to understand that we are the body of Christ. Everybody got that? You're going to hear people say that about original sin. Well, original sin isn't true because the Bible doesn't use the term. 
doesn't matter. It's taught from the very first page of Scripture all the way through Scripture. Original sin. We inherit sin from our Father. Yes. And I've been seeing on YouTube Muslims like trick Christians and say, show me where Jesus says, I am God and worship me. Exactly. That's right. It is implicit all the way through the New Testament. His question, I don't know if they could hear that or not, but Muslims and other people, atheists, all kinds of people online will try to trick Christians by saying Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, he did in 15 different ways, okay? But you have to understand what he's saying. He doesn't say, I am God, come and worship me, all right? Doesn't make any difference. It is as apparent as the nose on your face that he is Jehovah of the Old Testament. Every one of the writers of the New Testament makes that, especially in the book of Hebrews, it is explicit at least 15 times. They cite the Old Testament. They attribute the words of the Lord, Jehovah, in the Old Testament to Jesus. One to one ratio. You don't need to have that doctrine explicitly stated for it to be implicitly understood. But it is explicitly stated in the book of Hebrews. There is no way to get around it without abusing scripture. So that's a very good point. People are always trying to trip you up with silly little things. Don't let them do it. Know your scripture well enough where you can say, I know that it doesn't say original sin in the Bible, but I understand the doctrine of original sin. So come on, let's sit down and we'll talk about it here. And if they're willing to listen, which a lot of people aren't today, everybody's a specialist, okay? But if they're willing to listen, they will very quickly come to the understanding that the uh, doctrine of original sin is there. It is valid. So is the Trinity. So is another one that you hear all the time from naysayers is the rapture. Never says rapture in the New Testament. So it's taught there at least four different places, maybe five. Anyway, it, at least four explicitly taught there. I, yeah, it is explicit. You just don't need the, the word rapture for it to be explicit, and it is. Anyway, um, we'll go on. I'll read that sentence again. Now, speaking specifically of the body of Christ, he notes the similarity of it to the natural body. And in the natural body, he made his argument, even to the point of absurdity, that the parts were independent, interdependent upon one another. As this is true, the same is true with the spiritual body. He will continue to demonstrate this in the verses ahead. The reason for all of this detail is probably because there were individuals in the church at Corinth that felt that their greater spiritual gift meant that they didn't need to rely on those with lesser gifts. But as Paul has shown this to be false within the human body, he will also show it to be false with the spiritual body. Life application, too often Christians will put a figure on a pedestal. Pastors and preachers are elevated to unhealthy levels of esteem when they are simply fulfilling a particular role within the body as it was appointed by the Spirit. They are completely dependent on the other members for their continued success. They are not independent of the body. While giving them due honor, which it says to exp explicitly do so in the uh, pastoral epistles, we still need to make sure that they are not turned into idols. Okay? Important precept that a lot of people seem to overlook. Verse 12, 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The eye is an important part of the body. It receives the light and it discerns between various objects and what the distance is between those objects is. It allows for the body to know where it's going, where the food is, who are different people, and so on. Some might say that without the eye, the body would be in a bad way. But if the eye decided it was the most important part of the body, even to the point of the exclusion of other parts, it would be overreaching its importance. I've got a dog that is completely blind. He found out that the eye is pretty important, but guess what? He's learned to live without it. He knows exactly when to turn. He runs in the backyard right up to the house, and then he turns right at the right point, gets up on the stairs, and once in a while his foot will trip, and he ends up what you, uh, face planting on the stairs. But he's willing to do it every time. So the eye is not absolutely uh, essential, but it is a necessary part of the body. But if the eye gets arrogant, you can do without it. The eye might say to the hand, I don't need you. However, the hand is the member that is able to grasp the food that feeds the body. The eye can't do that. The hand is the one that defends against attacks against the body. The eye can't do that either. 
If the hand wasn't there, the eye would quickly perish. Likewise, the head may say to the feet, I don't need you. Well, yeah, the head is important. I'd agree with that. Without the head, we would be dead. But without the feet, the body wouldn't be complete. The feet take us where we need to go. Without them, the head would be left stuck in one place, unable to get the pool of water to drink. It wouldn't be able to climb the mountain or enjoy a day by the beach. The head would be silly to think that it could do without the feet. And the same is true with the members within the church. Each has a purpose and each provides a necessary function which complements the whole. Just because one member thinks it's pretty great stuff, it does not mean that it is more important than the other. I'll tell you what, we have a uh, group that goes out to the projects every single Saturday. We've done this for years and years and years, right? Uh, 9.30. I won't be there this Saturday because I've got something to do, but there'll be a couple people at least. 9.30 every Saturday we're out there, and we have different people that do different things in the projects. And we have one leader. And nobody would know he's the leader because he's the most humble guy you'll ever meet in the world. And he just walks around with the others. He never forces himself on anybody. He quietly does the job. And yet, he is the one that has kept that going for 12 and almost 13 years now. So, and you uh, want to make sure that you understand that every part is integral, every part is needed. And sometimes the parts that are doing the most important job don't even let you know that they're doing it. Um, life application, it is certain that you need the other members of the body. So try to recognize their importance. Don't be fooled into believing that they are without value. If the Lord has saved them and the Spirit has given them a gift, they are valued by the Creator Himself. Verse 12, 22. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Paul is continuing on with his thoughts concerning the importance of all parts of the body. In this verse, he notes something which is obvious but possibly not commonly thought of. There are a multitude of body parts, and we often, <coughs> excuse me, we often think about the ones that we use a lot and which have strength. Our hands, arms, biceps, tongue, legs, and so on are things that we think about because we voluntarily use them and we also work hard to strengthen them for tasks. On the other hand, we have body parts that are hidden away and are very fragile. The inner body parts like the liver, heart, lungs, and so on aren't things that we normally think about as being strong or capable of doing great tasks. They are in there and they do their job, but we may consider them weaker in regards to our normal functioning. We don't spend time exercising our liver, do we? Well, some people do, but anyway. And yet, how necessary our liver is. We can't function properly at all without those parts. And when they fail, the body will die. However, if a leg fails, we can chop it off and continue to live. If we lose a hand, it may be a terrible loss, but we can make up for it by using the other hand or even the feet to accomplish necessary tasks. I know one person was born without any arms at all, and this girl uses her feet for everything, and she can do every single task that you would have around your house. She can do every one of them. Cooking, ironing, everything with no arms, no hands. All right? If we think of these parts as different members of the church, we can see the importance of them. The pastor, maybe he's a right hand, gets a lot of attention. and He is often sent to schools or seminars for strengthening and learning. But the person who cleans the bathroom maybe he's a liver, is neglected. But what happens if the bathroom doesn't get cleaned for a while? The body will suffer and people will stop coming to that church. Without congregants, the body dies. The pastor's job can be filled by another pastor in the church and the church will continue. But if no one is there to replace the cleaner, then the church may actually suffer more than the loss of the pastor. Life application, be sure to thank the person who cleans the church. Let them know that they are appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. In this church, I did vacuum today because Burke didn't show up, so I did vacuum. So you're welcome for the nice vacuum church. And I did it with a foot that is swollen like a little football here. So I tell you, every step you take, man, it feels like jelly moving around in your foot. It hurts and it kind of rolls around. And 
Eh, whatever. You know, I, I was laying there on the couch feeling miserable, and I thought, I'll put a cushion up under my foot. Maybe that'll make it feel better. And after about five minutes, I thought, I wonder if that's going to make the poison run to my heart or something. So I got rid of the cushion. I don't know what to do with this stupid thing. Anyway, 1223. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor and our unpresentable parts have the greater modesty. We can all know exactly what he's talking about there without even evaluating it. But we will evaluate it. Before I do, though, if anybody's watching this today and they have a question, please don't email me for until next week, okay? I haven't had internet. I've got a guest coming. I can't handle any more work than I will have over the next two days, even if I get internet tonight. So please don't email for a few days. Um, let's see here. Continuing on with how we handle the parts of the body and the interaction between those parts, Paul now mentions an observable truth. Those members of the body we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. There are parts of the body which may seem less honorable than others. The ear, for example, may not seem to be worth as much attention as the eyes, and yet the ear may be given a beautiful gold earring to highlight it. The fourth finger on the hand may seem like an afterthought compared to the thumb, the pinky, or the middle finger. However, we tend to adorn this one with a ring of gold more than all the others. The feet don't shout out for much attention, they're just feet. And yet we may spend an inordinate amount of money on a variety of shoes to call attention to who we are. I know somebody that doesn't have that problem, but most people do. The shoes direct the eyes of others to the feet, despite their otherwise plain appearance. And so it is true with members within the church. There are those who attend church who never miss a sermon but they may be quiet and not flaunt their faithful attendance. They also may not strive to be noticed in any other way. And yet, if the pastor is wise, he will call attention to such faithful attendees during a sermon, using them as examples for the others to emulate. Likewise, he may call them up for a special gift, noting their faithfulness to the church. Paul continues with the thought that our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. There are those parts which parts which distinguish us as male or female. These are covered for modesty's sake. There are also blemishes that some carry because of sickness, wounds, or birth defects. We will often cover these from sight. In essence, we are showing honor to these unpresentable parts through their covering. Thus, we are actually highlighting them through concealment. Paul will explain the result of this in the coming verse. Life application, there is no person who is without value within the body. It is our duty to seek out the special points of each of these people and to recognize them for the value they possess. By doing so, they will know that they are important to us. Okay, verse 12, 24. But our presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. In the previous verse, Paul spoke of the unpresentable parts of the body and how we cover them because they have greater modesty. He now notes that this is completely unnecessary for our presentable parts. Parts of the body which show no offense to others, which are not considered immoral when displayed openly, or those which are we are not shy about presenting because they are somehow weaker or defective are openly displayed. And so there is a contrast in how we exhibit these parts. Likewise, there is a contrast in how our gifts are displayed. All of them are given by God. It is He, it is God who has composed the body. And in this, there is actually great wisdom because He has essentially, as Paul says, given greater honor to that part which lacks it. As noted in the previous verse, we are showing honor to these unpresentable parts through their covering. Thus, we are actually highlighting them through concealment. Think on this on an individual basis. Suppose there is someone who has electrical skills in the church. My brother has electrical skills. He's in a church. He is quiet and he doesn't want his gift noted for everyone to see and compliment. When something electrical needs to be done, he will do it. The church may have a fantastic display of Christmas lights, innovative lighting of signs or areas of the building, or a truly unique layout of certain display units, and so on. All of these have brought honor to both the body and to God, 
And yet, at the same time, this part of the body was essentially covered from the view of others. Those who need to know the use of this gift will appreciate and acknowledge it directly, while others will acknowledge it from afar. And I can tell you from experience, my brother being an electrician does not want anybody to know that he's an electrician. Because the first thing that happens when somebody knows you're an electrician is they call you because, hey, old buddy, I've got a problem. And he, he just, he will do it. And he will grit his teeth through the whole thing because we have electricians that actually are paid for that type of thing. But anyway, life application. Your gift has been given for the benefit of the whole. Use it for that purpose and to the honor of God who gave it. I know I've used that same life application probably 10 times, but it's true. I know that it's true about my brother, not because he's ever told me, but I just know that it's true. Uh, because for one reason, I have a chainsaw. Once people know you have a chainsaw, especially if you have a big wind, like uh, Irmo came through a couple years ago, if I had attended to everybody that needed that chainsaw, I would have been working day and night for months, literally months. Once somebody knows you got something and you can use it, they're going to ask you for it. It just, and Tom, he's smiling. He knows he's a he's truck. the line guy. The what? A pickup, a pickup truck. truck. Oh, I'm so glad. I got to tell you what, you bring that up and you say it. I had that Nissan Titan and I got called almost every week. Somebody wanted to borrow my truck almost every week. I've got a, you know, a, a grandmother, what do you call it? Queen bed. I need to move it. I need help moving my house. You've got a truck. It's suddenly you're there. I bought that Titan and not one person has called me. The thing isn't big enough to carry around four of these chairs. I am so happy. Huh? It's glorious. It, I, I, what did I say? Did I say a Titan again? It's a Tacoma. Anyway, I bought that little Tacoma out there. I don't get calls for it. You can't get, you can get a twin bed in there and who needs a twin bed moved, you know? I mean, I will never have a big truck again, ever, uh, ever. You're right about it. You got to pick up, somebody's going to call you. 1225, let's they see here. Oh, some people Either wanted to way. borrow it. Some people would ask me, I need help moving it, whatever. You know, I, my daughter, she and a couple other people wanted to move some stuff and they came over and I said, okay, you can use the truck. I said, don't scratch it, don't dent it. I went through a list of things, don't do. They brought it back and it was, had the tailgate was crushed. I it just, you know, watch where you're going, don't ruin my truck, and that's what they did. You know, my son borrowed my truck one time because somebody needed a jump. Okay, this is a, a truck that I got from the company I worked at. They got rid of him every couple years and I put the bid on it, I got the highest bid and I got it for almost nothing. And uh, so I had this beautiful Ford, you know, the small Ford, what is it, uh, Ford? Ranger. I had a Ford Ranger. It's a really nice truck. And uh, anyway, I uh, uh, let him borrow it. He jumped somebody with it. He pulled over to let the guy pass so he could follow him home to make sure he got home. The guy's battery or engine stopped and he ran right into the back of the truck, bent the frame, and my truck was gone, totaled. Never, never borrow my truck, okay? That's the only one I have and I need it for everything I do. I, I do all of my part-time jobs. I need it. Somebody wants to borrow that truck. I'm just going to be like, please. Uh, anyway, yeah, it doesn't matter. Both ways. They want to borrow your truck or they want you to help as you drive the truck. Okay, where was I? 1224. We got time for one more. Do we? Yes. Uh, what's that? Oh, did we read? Yes, 1225. And yes, we have time for that. It's a small one. These are all small verses with commentary because it's very basic stuff. Um, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Okay, 1225, Paul has been speaking of the body parts and their importance, even if there are some that are seemingly unimportant. But he informed us that God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. That was the previous verse. It is with this thought in mind that he now gives the reason God has done these things. It is that there should be no schism within the body. This word schism is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 as he was opening the letter. It indicates a division. And this is exactly what precipitated the writing of the letter in the first place. There in verse 110, he said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions, no schisms among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. His use of the body parts to show the importance of each of them. 
regardless of how they are perceived at first, is to show that they are all perfectly joined together. He is returning the body of this entire section back to the original thought of chapter 1. Understanding this, we can see the heart of Paul and God who inspired his writings for unity within the congregation and felicity between the various members. And this is so that the members, as Paul says, should have the same care for one another. As the epistle is given for this very purpose, then it is immensely important that the body of believers holds fast to what God has intended. Within the congregation, let no self-exalting occur and let no deprecation of others be found. Rather, let there be care for one another. And life application, and we will be done. It won't hurt you a bit to treat the seemingly lowest person in the church with kindness and respect. And it won't hurt one iota to humble yourself before those you worship with. In fact, doing both will increase your esteem in the eyes of the Lord. For the people that weren't here when we started online, uh, I have no internet. I have uh, uh, a million things that need to be done as soon as I get internet. But for tonight, I've got to get this loaded up on YouTube here. And then whenever I get internet, I'll be able to finish all the, the stuff with it that but I'm, I'm sorry that we have to stop early, and I know uh, one of our people drove halfway across the world to get here, so I apologize about that, but we have, to, we have to close early tonight. So we'll go to prayer, and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the chance to come and to share in your word, and what a wonderful set of verses today to know that we are all of value in your eyes. It doesn't matter what our job within the church is. As long as we're doing it properly and we're doing it to your glory, you have pleasure in that and you are pleased with us and so thank you for that knowledge and i would pray for anybody out there that does not have their own church but uses the superior word as their own church that they would find a reason within this body as difficult as it is to not have a church that you can sit in they are members and we thank you for them and we ask that you give them something that they can do for the church which will bless others we've got doug over in uh Ireland, who does a painting for the church every single week, and he's using his gifts to the glory that you have endowed him with to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, if anybody can do something like that, whether it's actually a part of the superior word or just going out and handing out tracts, they can tell people about Jesus. Give them the assurance that they have a purpose in their walk with you. And Lord, we thank you for that, and we praise you, and we do lift up the people that we mentioned at the beginning of the service that you would give them uh, what they need in their uh, in the requests that were stated and we thank you for these things and we praise you and we do so in Jesus name amen okay back that up let's see your break there you go